2: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to
1: Weird House Cinema Rewind. This is Rob Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And on today's Weird House Cinema Rewind, we are bringing you an episode that aired July 8th, 2022. This was our episode on Blade. What more could you ask for?
1: Yeah, it seemed fitting. You know, we were kind of trying to ice skate uphill this week uh, with our workload. And so we had to call on Blade to come in and help us out a little this Friday. Um, But I, I think it's fitting. Blade's been on my mind a little bit i'm checking out this uh, video game midnight suns in which you get to control blade in turn-based combat it's pretty oh. fun and uh and we're still i guess some ways away from the next blade movie with mahershala ali uh i understand that one has had some some setbacks and changes occur but uh, hopefully they're going to get back on track they're going to shoot that like in our neighborhood and uh, then it'll be ready for us uh sometime in like 2025 or
3: something beautiful
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey,
0: welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And hey, today, are we getting into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Is this a, is this a Marvel superhero <laughs>
1: movie? Um, uh, well, no, <laughs> not quite for the first question, but yes, for the second question, because... We're going to be talking about the 1998 movie Blade, a movie that is kind of, it is kind of the precursor to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But unlike the PG era and PG, I guess, 13, probably era of Marvel films that we have today, and even the darker DC films that we have, and certainly those have more in common with Blade, uh, we're talking about a solid R here. Mostly yes. for violence and language, a little bit of sexuality, uh, but you know several different things that wouldn't fly in the Marvel movies that are so popular right now.
0: It is hilarious that this is essentially, I would say, a movie for kids, but absolutely not for kids. Hardcore, (laughs) R-rated comic book movie. uh, Like, basically every other word is the F word. It's relentless. Yeah, Blade, as a superhero, has several different superpowers,
1: but one of them is definitely that he gets to say the F. And he gets to say the F (laughs) as many times as he wants to, as far as I can tell. I don't think there's a limit.
0: And there's constantly blood spraying everywhere <laughs> on everything, yes, yeah, there's a lot of blood in this one
1: um, and a lot of attitude so it's uh this is a movie where we're once more uh, getting pretty close up to uh, uh, the dawn of the millennium here uh, and the end of the millennium that we uh, spend most of our time in and the century we spend most of our time in, uh, because this is' ninety eight i think I think the closest we've come. To, uh, to, to to breaking uh, the, the millennium point has been Deep Blue Sea. Is that 99? I think that was 99, but we're, we're pushing yeah. the boundaries again here.
0: Well, so I was thinking about this and about how Blade is not only a vampire superhero movie... It is also very much uh, in terms of like the cinematography, the way this movie looks and, uh, and the, the, the way that the fights in it are staged. It is very much a millennial R-rated action thriller. And mm-hmm. so what does that mean? I, w- I would characterize it as follows. Sets with tons of slick gleaming surfaces and gunmetal gray coloration. Everything mm-hmm. is wet uh, lots of casual depiction of futuristic digital devices like uh, like laptops and cell phones doing things that they absolutely did not do at the time in 1998 <laughs> and no one finding this unusual even though the movie is set in the present uh, and just lots of wires everywhere. Uh, Beyond that, I would say muted colors in general with kind of harsh white lighting, like not not soft yellow lighting, harsh white lighting reflecting off of all the slickness in the sets and then extreme gratuitous gun violence where like rooms Mm -hmm. of bad guys are sprayed with bullets, causing huge panes of glass to explode and shower down in slow motion. And then finally, sunglasses inside all the time. Yeah, the gun violence is interesting in this film because it's not the
1: thing that I think of when I think of Blade, but it's, uh-huh. uh, it's clearly part of, of, of these movies. Uh, you know, when I look back fondly, though, I'm thinking about the times that he's, he's kicking vampires and stabbing uh-huh. vampires and, and uh, using that katana uh, sword and so forth. But yeah, he's also blasting roomfuls of, of vampires. But, but I don't know, that stuff doesn't seem to, I don't know, with me anyway, it doesn't resonate as much as the martial arts action.
0: Oh yeah, the martial arts is clearly where it's at. Blade kicks, and he—you just imagine like when you're watching this movie. I like if Blade kicked you, it'd be like getting hit by a bus. Yeah, yeah. Every every time
1: Blade, really, any time anyone is hit in this movie, I buy it. Like it, it, it does a really good job of selling the physical violence. Uh, now, before we go any any deeper, I'm going to I guess I'll mention this. We've, we've started mentioning where to watch a film earlier on in the episode for folks who want to go in uh, unspoilt. But uh, basically, you can watch Blade everywhere. Uh, you can get it on DVD. You can get it on Blu-ray. I think there's a three pack of Blade films out there. Uh, and there's also, uh, you can simply go to, I think HBO Max, as of this recording in the U.S., has, has all, all three of the original Blades um, streaming. So Blade 1, the excellent Blade 2, and also Blade 3, or Blade Trinity, if you will.
0: Now, I think you're more of a connoisseur of Blade than I am. Of my earliest experience... Uh, well, basically, I think I'd only ever seen this first movie before. Uh, mm. I saw it probably like eighth or ninth grade, so not too long after it came out. I think I watched a VHS tape of it in a friend's garage. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's the setting. Is uh, your friend I just Whistler? Thought, <laughs> no, no. It's like, come on! I'm up uh, here, buddy, for some buddy, reason, I'm put a movie on for you. <laughs> No, he just just he had a TV in his garage. I don't know why. He said, we go we go in there and we watch Blade because that's what you do. You're in eighth grade, <laughs> and it's 1999, and yeah, there you go. So wait, have you not seen Guillermo del Toro's
1: Blade Two? No, I haven't seen any of the sequels at oh, all. Oh my goodness, Blade Two is amazing. Blade Two is is everything that this film brings to the table, but then Guillermo del Toro weirdness on top of that. So all sorts of like weird um, quasi Catholic imagery and, uh, and and strangeness. I'll touch on a little bit of, of this as we proceed, but I'll try not to get into Blade Two too much uh, because oh, it's its own special
3: treat.
0: Well, so that made me want to raise something. Uh, Guillermo del Toro obviously loves magic, and I wonder mm. how his influence affects what I would consider the mostly materialist vampire ideology in Blade. So, Blade the Blade universe is full of vampires, but with a few exceptions – they don't really seem to be supernatural. Like the vampires are not affected by holy objects. They, they don't seem to be spiritually demonic in nature, though they are evil. Uh, they're treated mm-hmm. as products of, of genetic mutation, you know, they, like they have a virus or a mutation in their bodies. I would say the only major exception to this is suddenly at the end of the movie, they bring in this like apparent magic ritual that does seem to have effect, like it actually works to summon yeah. a blood god. Yeah, I'd say when Del Toro comes along, you know, granted, he's he was
1: beholden to what was established in the first film, but he seems he seems to embrace the materialist view of the vampire. But with mm-hmm. the key difference being for for Norrington and company in this film, uh, yeah, vampires are kind of people with supernatural powers. But for Del Toro, obviously, a vampire is a monster. He is a, a man of monsters and mm-hmm. his vampires are going to be monsters.
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I would say in this, yeah, you're right. The vampires are just like people who are universally bad, and they have super strength, and they drink blood. Yeah. Though, then again, I should stress, for Del Toro, monster
1: has different connotations, perhaps, than it does to, for other people. Like, he loves his yeah. monsters. It doesn't mean the monster doesn't have a lot of personality and depth. In fact, there's a good chance that the monster will have more personality and depth than any human character uh, that he might be dealing with.
0: Now, another thing that sort of sets Blade apart uh, that I think I noticed when I first watched it uh, back in the day was that this is a movie that has a vampire hunter character of the classic Van Helsing type. I would have you know mm-hmm. seen movies with Peter Cushing doing this role on TV probably when I was younger. Um, but a big difference is that this is a high-tech vampire hunter. And this yeah. was not the first movie to have uh, characters like this. I mean, uh, I'm sure there were plenty. I, I can think of John Carpenter's Vampires came out earlier. and in, in that one, the vampire hunters have all kinds of technology and stuff, don't they?
1: Now actually John Carpenter's Vampires came out the same year. I'm not sure exactly oh, okay. like where they they fall um in in terms of each other though. Well, I, either way, I mean, I'm production. sure this
0: was was not the first movie to do this, but that that was kind of a change up on my expectations because mm-hmm. the the earlier, you know, the Vampire Hunter is more of a uh, sort of a, a holy warrior, kind of a, kind of a priest uh, slash professor who wields a stake and a cross and all that. Uh, again, you know, you're, you're Peter Cushing type. Here it is like the toughest dude you've ever met and he's decked out in all kinds of, with like gizmos and gadgets. He's like Batman. He's got a, you know, utility belt full of stuff. Yeah, he is a secular vampire hunter, as opposed to the,
1: the holy men that we see, certainly in, the, in uh, European traditions, but also in, uh, in Eastern traditions as well. There's stuff like Mr. Vampire, you know, that's right. the role of the holy man to deal with the vamps. I wish they had had some rice in this movie, though. They, they use the garlic, but uh-huh. they,
0: they don't use any, any rice. A, a glutinous rice dealer scene would yeah. have really set Blade apart. Ooh, that would have been, it would have been brutal. Can you imagine the dressing down a corrupt rice dealer would get from Wesley (laughs) Snipes as Blade? Because that's one more thing that really sets Blade apart is the way Wesley Snipes completely embodies this character. I don't know what... So this is based on comics. I have no idea what Blade is like in the comics, but it is hard to imagine this character as anything other than, than Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes brings a kind of... Uh, I don't know. A, a like a weird poise and and a sort of almost ironic sense of line delivery. It's it's beautiful and it's very singular. Yeah, I, I will come back to this, but I think Wesley Snipes is as
1: perfect in this role uh, as as anyone you can point to in a given role. Like he, yeah. everything he does as Blade is just spot on. You buy it, you believe it. Uh, it's absolutely perfect.
0: It's like Robert Shaw as Quint just is the character. Yeah, absolutely. All right, before we go any further, let's let's have
1: let's hear part of the trailer. I don't I don't really love this trailer, uh, so we'll just listen to a little bit of it just to remind you what you're dealing with in 1998's Blade.
2: You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it, the real world. For thousands of years, they have existed among us. You keep your eyes open. They're everywhere. Chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it. A secret nation. Our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in with a lust for power. We should be ruling the humans. These people are our food. They've got their claws into everything. Politics, finance, real estate. There's a war going on out there. He makes the weapons. I use them now one will lead them to conquer mankind tonight the age of man comes to an end we're gonna be gods and one will try to stop him dead <laughs> there are worse things
1: out tonight than vampires
3: like what
0: like me blade trailers were bad in the 90s
1: yeah yeah i don't i don't love it um I don't know maybe it's different depending on uh, on age and what one is nostalgic for, but yeah, this is a trailer where I'm like, no, 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 the movie's great. Trailer, uh, I can I can take it or leave it. All right, well let's let's get into the folks involved in this film, shall we? Oh, please. All right, starting at the top, the director is Stephen Norrington, born 1964. Uh, this, is, this isn't this is the first time we've discussed Stephen Norrington, as he did creature designs on 1992's Split Second. That, uh, <laughs> that really fun Rudger Hauer, what, soft post-environmental apocalypse monster hunter film.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, let's see. My memory is that in Split Second, we did not get much of a look at the creature. They kind of kept it uh, mm-hmm. mostly obscured. Yeah, you don't see much of it. I, I, if memory serves, there
1: were like a lot of last-minute changes. Uh, but it ends up working pretty well because you don't see a lot of it. But when you when you mm-hmm. do see more of it, you realize it's kind of a mix between a xenomorph and uh, Judge Death from the Judge Dredd comic books. All right, so Norrington uh, is a London-born effects makeup artist who worked on such films as Aliens, Young Sherlock Holmes, Hardware, Alien 3, and Jim Henson's The Storyteller. And then Ooh. he would go on to direct the film Death Machine, uh, which had Brad Doriff and Richard Brake in it. And he followed this up with Blade. Uh, From here, he went on to make The Last Minute and the film that reportedly kind of made him step back from actually directing The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, But I believe he has continued to work in effects and other areas of filmmaking. And every now and then catch some buzz of some possible project coming together uh, with Norrington involved. Uh, But at any rate, uh, I, I like his work in this film.
0: Oh, yeah, and I'm really impressed that he did effects on on Storyteller, which has marvelous special effects. I love it. Yeah, yeah, Storyteller is a lot of fun like those uh, ooh the the Medusa statue coming to life and all that ooh yeah it's that's great stuff uh, wow I never saw League of Extraordinary Gentlemen but I distinctly <laughs> remember the day that my friends went to see it in the theater and they were talking about it for the rest of the day uh, it, it made an impression on them and it was not a good one
1: it seemed to be one of those films that it caused a, a lot of people involved in it were kind of kind of had to question what they were doing with their lives at that
3: point yeah. I guess
1: <laughs> but but uh, I don't know. But I haven't seen it. Maybe I would actually enjoy it. I don't know. Um, I will say that with Blade, however, you mentioned like some of the stylistic choices. And I think some of those definitely are just tied to uh, the, the style of the day. But I also really like some of the choices that they made in terms of, of how they portrayed night and day. Like a lot of the mm. night scenes... Tend to feel uh, hyper and alive, like they're they're literally twitching, like they they're just going to start dancing at any second. Uh, mm-hmm. While the daylight world often feels languid and underwater, you know, kind of uh, yeah, in a sense that 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 really meshes with this idea of like creatures of the night and creatures of uh, that are mostly of the night are being drawn further into that
0: world. I know exactly what you're talking about—that underwater feeling, and also that. This movie has a lot of – again, this is as I said earlier, this is common to a lot of these action movies of the time. But uh, lighting often feels harsh in this movie. Like even lights mm-hmm. just coming out of the ceiling are like, oh, oh, I don't like that. It feels bad. Yeah.
1: All right. So that's Norrington. That's the director. Screenwriter on this is David S. Goyer, born in 1965. That's a name I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a huge name in the screen screenwriting world. Um, his earliest screenplay credit is for Death Warrant, a Jean-Claude Van Damme martial arts movie from 1990. And he followed that up with uh, Albert Payun's Kickboxer 2, which did not star Jean-Claude Van Damme. And he also did the Charles Band produced Peter Manoogian directed horror film, Demonic Toys in
0: 1992. Is this just a parallel to the Puppet Master movies or was it trying to sort of copycat them?
1: Um I think it was part of you know this was certainly getting into the area of of Charles Band and company figuring out what works and then like and then continuing to pump pump that out. Uh, I've never fleets, seen a demonic yeah. toys movie but I know they like later demonic toys have crossover adventures with other Charles Band <laughs> properties.
0: It's so Jetsons meet the Flintstones except they're toys with like drills and razors attached to them.
1: Now, he went on to work uh, again for Bandcamp on the 1993 film Arcade, but he quickly moved up from there working in TV and film projects till he collaborated with Alex Proyas and Lim Dobbs on 1998's
0: Dark City. Just an excellent wow. weird film, in my opinion. Uh, Dark City is amazing. That, that one, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't watched it in a while, but for a long time, that was one of my favorite movies yeah same here I, I haven't watched it recently but back in the day absolutely loved it
1: totally blew me away when i watched it so de- you know definitely made a huge impression on me now I, I should also mention though that same year uh goyer was also involved in the nick fury agent of shield tv movie that starred david hasselhoff uh, so <laughs> he was you know, he was already getting in and getting a little marvel-y uh, with his screenwriting i did not know that existed but at any rate, yeah, then he moves on to Blade. And Blade, is, it's kind of the perfect Goyer screenplay, wouldn't you say? Uh, mm. Especially when you consider many of the projects that came afterwards. It's a dark, largely serious comic book adaptation. Uh, he followed this up with screenplays for the, you know, again, the excellent and weird Blade 2. Uh, also Blade Trinity, which Goyer himself directed. Uh, Blade Trinity did not continue the upward trajectory of the Blade franchise, but it, it does have at least one great
0: Bladeism in
1: it. So it has that going for it.
0: There are so many great Blade lines that I would love to quote, mm-hmm. but uh, we can't do it without making this uh, episode need a parental advisory sticker. <laughs> right. Because again, Blade will say the F, and yeah. all of his best
1: lines have the F in them. Yeah. Now, Blade Trinity was said to be a difficult shoot, uh, but uh, Goyer didn't give up on directing. He came back with some various TV projects and the films The Invisible and The Unborn. And on the screenwriting end of things, he went on to work on Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, Jumper, Man of Steel, the upcoming Hellraiser reboot, he at least has a story credit on that, Terminator Dark Fate, and the upcoming adaptation of the Sandman graphic novels. So, Um, Yeah, uh, Goyer is a huge name. You can't really, uh, 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 no no matter what you think of some of these films, there's no denying it. Now, of course, we should drive home that Norrington and Goyer did not invent Blade. Uh, This was the work of two comic book creators credited to, first of all, Marv Wolfman. Uh, This is a character creator credit. He was born 1946. He worked on Marvel Comics' The Tomb of Dracula, Uh, so this was a horror comic that ran for 70 issues between 1972 and 1979 it concerns vampire hunters including uh you know the van helsings and of course it has dracula in it like straight up marvel comics version of dracula blade Mm. was introduced as one of these vampire hunters uh, and uh, the original incarnation was more of a, like, a thoroughly 1970s affair. Like, he had wooden teak daggers, I believe. Mm. He had, uh, like, a, like, a large Afro hairdo. So, you know, he's very much inspired by some of the cinema of that time period. Mm. And the other character creator, Gene uh, uh, Col- Colan, was born 1926 through 2011. Uh, he was the artist, and I think he's he has, has said in, in past interviews that he based part of the look of Blade on Jim Brown uh, as well as other um, uh, famous black actors of the time. Uh, Now, uh, uh, Colan worked on the comics uh, Daredevil as well as Howard the Duck. He also co-created the heroes Falcon and Carol Danvers. Uh, But going back to Wolfman... um, yeah, the uh following this film there was apparently a legal dispute between Wolfman and Marvel. He does get an official character credit on Blade 2. Uh, he's written some TV shows over the years including a few episodes of Fraggle Rock if I am huh. is correct on that. Um, and fun fact there was actually a previous Japanese animated adaptation of the Tomb of Dracula comic came out in 1980, but I do not believe it has Blade in it. Um though the character does show up in the 1990s Spider-Man cartoon. I don't know if you watched this Joe, but no. um, you know this was this was a fun cartoon it came on in the afternoons after you got home from school and they eventually just throw every Spider-Man related Character in there, so Blade showing up, Morbius is showing up, uh, <laughs> all these oh. various weird Spider-Man like second and third tier characters and villains. Spider-Man met Morbius, yeah, yeah, yeah. Morbius was totally in the mix. Fun fact: Morbius was originally going to be in this film. Uh, if you go on YouTube, you can even find some rough uh, looking footage where originally at the end of it, Blade was going to have kind of like a, a
0: a stare down with Morbius, like setting up Blade versus Morbius in. The sequel i followed your link on this and i looked at the scene and my thought was like how's anybody supposed to know this is morbius it's just a guy standing there
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well maybe that's one of the reasons they they cut it out Uh. shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, let's get to, to the actors here. So, yes, Blade is Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes is Blade. Wesley Snipes was born in 1962 and really requires no introduction. I mean, he's... He appears as the character in both of the Blade uh, additional Blade movies that I mentioned, Blade 2 in 2002, Blade Trinity in 2004. One of his earliest credits is a 1984 episode of All My Children, followed by early roles in such films as Wildcats, 86, Streets of Gold, same year, Critical Condition from 87. But then in 89, he appeared in Major League, followed by... King of New York, starring Christopher Walken in 1990, and then a whole string of just huge films in the early 90s. New Jack City, Jungle Fever, White Men Can't Jump, Passenger 57, Rising Sun, and Demolition Man.
0: Demolition Man is a deeply stupid (laughs) movie, but it is also, Wesley Snipes is just great in it. He is so much fun. He's what, a criminal from the Past,
1: future, something that is – okay.
0: The premise is they froze – it takes place in a sort of – in a very softened utopian future uh, where like where there's no crime or littering or even swearing anymore and everything's all just like Mm. nice. And suddenly they accidentally unthaw a frozen criminal from the 1990s and that's Wesley Snipes and nobody knows how to deal with him. So they also have to unfreeze a uh, a tough cop from the nineties and that's (laughs) Sylvester Stallone. It's uh, whoever came up with that premise chef's kiss. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I I should see that one at some point. I, I, I hear that people enjoy it, at least in retrospect. I don't know how I did at the time. All right. Uh, now, of course, Snipes, post-Blade Trinity, he had some well-known legal issues, uh, but I believe he's, he's worked pretty steadily since then. He notably showed up in The Expendables 3, uh, Dolomite is my name, and Coming to America. That's coming numeral Two America the sequel that came out recently and uh, I have to say I've long wanted to check out his 2012 movie *Gallow Walkers in which he plays a cursed gunman who fights the undead Patrick Bergen is in it so you know it's, it's worth looking at right
0: Oh yeah. And I also, I don't want to spoil too much about I mean, obviously we're going to spoil everything about blade because, you know, we mm-hmm. got to talk about the, 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 like the ritual at the end and stuff. But, uh, but for a different show, I'll, I'll, I'll limit it to just saying that Wesley Snipes has an amazing cameo in the, uh, in the, what we do in the shadows TV series. <laughs> nice. I uh, Just to go back to something we discussed in a previous
1: Weird House, I also have to say that when I think about Snipes now, I can't help but think about Steven Seagal, because huh. I mean, both actors are of the same era. Both actors were allegedly difficult on set or could be difficult on set in some cases, Uh However, Snipes was clearly the bigger star. And I feel like in Blade especially, Snipes manages to actually capture the essence of a modern action movie warrior priest. Certainly a a vibe that Seagal was was always going for in these films, but not quite nailing. Uh, So Snipes kind of captures what uh, Seagal always aspired for.
0: Oh, That's an interesting way to put it, yeah. Well, I, I would say another difference is that while Snipes does plenty of these uh, these silly action hero roles, Snipes is actually a good actor, and I don't mm-hmm. think that can be said of Steven Seagal. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important distinction to, to make. Now, you know what they say,
1: every great hero needs a, at least a mediocre villain, and that's that's where we turn to Deacon Frost. Uh, our vampire villain in this film, played by Stephen Dorff, born 1973.
0: Oh, I think uh, Dorff as Deacon Frost is better than mediocre. I I found him uh, delightfully fun as the villain in this. He's fun. I don't know. Something always felt a little
1: lacking for me in this character. Uh, You know, not, not, not bashing the performance at all. I feel like he delivers on what they were going for here. And, mm-hmm. and maybe ultimately, it goes beyond that. Like, Deacon Frost is a, is a villain that I am not rooting for. Like, I don't like him. And right. ultimately, maybe that's the point. Like, I'm not supposed to like Deacon Frost. He's an upstart. Um, you know, he's a, he insults everybody, whether you're a, you know, other vampires or you're a vampire hunter. You know, he's a, he's a consummate bad guy in that regard.
0: He, I love the premise for the character though. It's hilarious. He is basically the idea is Deacon Frost is taking this vampire thing a little too far. You know, he's yeah. like, well, I can understand the, the killing people and drinking their blood, but Frost is a little extreme. He is. He's an extremist. He's a young
1: extremist. And the old establishment doesn't really know what to do with him. Um, and <laughs> is hilariously inept <laughs> at, at yeah. dealing with any internal threats, clearly.
0: Um yeah, he gets and taken so, before yeah, the he, board of directors of vampires, and they're like, "Frost, you're 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 a loose cannon. You know, you're you're yeah, off the and force." Yeah. Like,
1: yeah. No. Yeah. Well, they don't even really kick him off the force. They're yeah. just like, "You shouldn't. You shouldn't be like this, Frost." And he's like, "Well, I am." And then he walks off and like smokes a cigarette. Yeah. And they're like, "And then kills them later." <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. And then later, just wipes them out, and <laughs> and yeah, it completely takes over without any real sense of. Uh, like you don't get the sense that oh man frost really was pulling those political strings like i don't know he looks Mm -hmm. like he just put at least marginal effort into it and the old vampire lords were just totally inept uh they didn't see it coming they couldn't come up with with even, like, they had every reason in the world to get rid of Stephen, uh, to get rid of Deacon Frost here, and th- there's no line in the film where they're kind of, where they even acknowledge why they haven't done so. They're not like, oh, Deacon Frost, you're so out of line, you're so you're so lucky that we have this one provision in vampire law that says we cannot kill you, or or something like, <laughs> oh, Deacon Frost, thank goodness you're doing the uh, the blood harvesting for us. Uh, otherwise, if, if you weren't so important, we would just get rid of you. There's no reason uh-huh. for us to believe that Frost has any importance to the vampire uh, authority here and yet they do nothing about him and then he kills them all.
0: Y- you're right it's not even like Tony Soprano being like oh I, I want to whack him but he's a good earner. They're just yeah. they're just yeah. like he's <laughs> constantly causing problems and threatening us. Oh what are we going to do? I'm Udo Kier <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: All right, so uh, Dorf though, uh, he's been around a while. Uh, Started off as a child actor, appearing in the 1987 film. One of his earlier roles was the 87 film The Gate, about kids summoning up demons at home. But most of his earlier credits are TV roles. But some bigger screen roles would come around with 1992's The Power of One, 94's Backbeat. Uh, as well as Stuart Gordon's Space Truckers in 1996. Mm. Post-Blade, he was in such films as John Waters' Cecil B. Demented in 2000. Ooh, the uh, If memory serves, terrible Fear.com in 2002. <laughs> wait, wait, what are you saying bad about Fear.com? I mean, maybe maybe it would be fun in retrospect, but at the time even, I remember watching Fear.com, and it
0: was just, oh, it was bad. No, it's bad. I mean, I, but it's <laughs> part of the... <laughs> series of movies all came out around that time about uh, telecommunications technology that kills you so like in the ring yeah. you get a phone call and it kills you and then in this movie you go to a website and it kills you yeah fear.com is like the the one of the worst uh, like ring knockoffs I guess of the era I think it actually might Did have come, come out first? slightly before the the American ring at least Oh, okay I'm not positive about that at any rate uh, it's bad Now,
1: I don't have much to say about a lot of these roles, but I do think that Dorf was pretty great in the third season of True Detective. He really uh, wowed me in that. Like, I hadn't really seen him play this sort of character before. Uh, Generally, I had only seen him play these cool characters from the the, the younger phase of his career. But as uh, this character, Detective Roland West in uh, True Detective, uh, I really liked him in that.
0: Yeah, I agree. He grizzled
1: well. Oh, uh, one more thing about him. Uh, fun fact, he's the son of composer Steve Dorff, who composed the score for the 1987 film, My Best Friend is a Vampire. Oh. All right. Uh, next actor we're going to talk about here, Chris Christopherson is in this. Uh, wow. Plays the character Whistler. Whistler is Blade's uh, tech man, his backup. His, uh, he's his Q, always uh, providing him with cool <laughs> new gadgets
0: with which to kill the blood drinkers except he's not whimsical like Q, you know. Don't touch that <laughs> 007. Instead, he's a uh, well, to come back to the theme of grizzled, he is he is as grizzled as it gets. Yeah, he is grizzled
1: to the max. Um and there, you can imagine Norrington being like, "Cut. All right, can we try it again, Chris, but this time more grizzled. Can you make yeah. it more grizzled and uh, and reckless and gruff?" And uh it's like, "Yep, yep, I can do it." Yeah, we Constantly need to get smoking. Okay constantly yes. guzzling jack uh, daniels it's great out of the
0: bottle without pouring it in the yep. glass
1: smoking while sloppily putting gasoline in a car
0: <laughs> yeah, smoking while f- fueling up a car he always looks mm-hmm. like he just stepped on a nail a few minutes ago <laughs> yeah that's right yeah he has like a his leg and a brace too right So this is Chris Christopherson,
1: very well-known name, singer-songwriter turned actor. Some of his biggest songs uh, that he wrote were Me and Bobby McGee, For the Good Time, Sunday Morning Coming Down, and Help Me Make It Through the Night. Uh, His first movie was 1971's The Last Movie, written and directed by Dennis Hopper. And he also starred in the movie um, Cisco Pike the same year. And he followed these up with such 1970s films as, uh, well, a pair of Sam Peckinpah films, Pat Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, as well as Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. He was also in Martin Scorsese's 1974 film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And in 1976, he starred opposite Barbara
0: Streisand in A Star is Born. Oh, was he playing the... um the, the Bradley Cooper role in, in that version of it?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's okay. the, the
0: character that, that Bradley Cooper would revisit in the remake.
1: Now, I can't we can't touch on all the films that christopherson has been in. He was in a ton of stuff during his mm-hmm. career. But uh, some of the others that stand out, at least to, to me, are uh, 1987's Gate, 1988's Big Top Pee Pee-wee, 1989's Millennium. Uh, he was in John Salus' Lone Star in 96. And in 2001, he was in Planet of the Apes.
0: The Planet of the Apes remake, the Tim
1: Burton one, right? Yeah, yeah. That one has a great cast, and I believe I've seen it. I don't know. I've, sometimes I feel like I need to revisit that one, see exactly what was up. It has some great ape suits. So, uh, obviously, he plays Whistler in all three Wesley Snipes Blade movies.
0: Uh, so,
3: what whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 a wait. bit of
0: a shocker to you, Joe. <laughs> I distinctly recall him dying in the movie I just watched. It didn't take. It didn't take. The character was too good. People wanted more Whistler.
1: So even (laughs) though. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But he comes back very early. It's not really a big plot point. They basically, early on in Blade 2, they're like, you remember Whistler? Well, he's back. We're bringing him back.
0: From the dead? Uh, like, is he a vampire? Um, I think there's a little
1: vampire-ness involved in his, uh, him coming back. Uh, but I'm a little foggy on how it happened. It, it also, it really, even at the time, as much as I love Blade 2, it felt like, what? We killed Whistler? No, he's great. Bring him back. So yeah, okay. Um, Chris Christopherson was also in the weird movie uh, Trouble in Mind from 1985, uh, directed and written by Alan Rudolph, which is a film that I th- I, I think I, I would, uh, there'd be a lot to talk about uh, if we were to cover this on Weird House Cinema, uh, if it were not for some of the less savory aspects of the character he plays in the film. Mm. Um, and now Chris Christopherson is really good in it, uh, and so are Divine, Keith Carradine, and Joe Morton. But... It, for my taste, anyway, Rudolph makes some choices with the protagonist that end up tarnishing the film for me. Uh. Anyway, at this point uh, in his career, Christopherson is is, is uh, still alive as of this recording, but is retired from acting and music these days. His last film role was 2018's Blaze, directed and written by Ethan Hawke. Not Blade, but Blaze. Blaze, yeah. So it went kind of went out. I guess in kind of a blaze of glory. I don't know. I haven't seen blaze. I'm not, mm. not sure what it's about. But I don't think it's about an off-brand... Uh, vampire killer
0: <laughs> Okay so we got Blade He's our vampire hunter and then we got uh, Whistler he is Our mm-hmm. vampire hunter's assistant Slash tech slash mechanic uh, But well, let's see in a, in a sort of materially based Vampire scenario you need a Hematologist in this it wouldn't be a movie yes. Without a hematologist Somebody uh, somebody yep. who can explain all the blood Science and wouldn't, wouldn't you know it we, we happen to run across a Hematologist quite early in the film Yep, it's Karen played by Embouche Wright, born
1: 1970, uh known for such films as 1995's Dead Presidents, 92 Zebrahead and uh 1994's Fresh. Uh so yeah, she she kind of it, this is in more of a modern film, you know, so she's She's not merely a damsel in in distress. She is in distress a few times and Blade does save her. But then she also pulls through and is, of course, a brilliant hematologist who starts cracking the vampire medical problem as well as proving herself very eager to grab a shotgun or a UV light torch and jump in and kill some vampires as well.
0: I I think Boucher Wright is great in this and I like her character's arc. So at first she is, yeah, she's just like, she gets bitten by a vampire and needs rescuing by blade. Uh, But yeah, over the course of the film, she, she becomes more and more active in fighting back. And yeah, so she invents, uh, invents some chemical weapons to use against the vampires. And she, uh, she, she gets a really good sword stab in on Donald Logue at one point and makes some vampires Mm -hmm. explode with some uh, garlic spray. Uh, She's great
1: yeah Uh, another actor of note in this is um lathan who plays Blade's mom, Vanessa. We see her at the very beginning in this flashback. Uh, born 1971, she had a, a much bigger career post-Blade, actually, starring in 2000's Love and Basketball and Brown Sugar from 2002, directed by Rick Famuua. Uh, She's also the lead in 2004's Alien vs. Predator. Whoa. And she had a recurring role on such TV shows as Nip Tuck, uh, Secession, and Family Guy.
0: So she's the main character in Alien versus Predator, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I remember having a thought about her character in that, which is that in the end, uh, she and the predators like defeat all the aliens and the predators mm-hmm. are like, good job, human. You know, you, you did good back <laughs> there. And then I think they give her a trophy or something and then they fly yeah. off. And then she is left standing by herself in the middle of Antarctica. So it's like, Oh, she would oh. definitely <laughs> die. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, the predators, they don't really know how humans work all that much, I guess. Yeah,
0: she. Uh, they should have given her a ride, I think.
1: All right, the next actor of note, Donald Logue is in this, playing the character Quinn, uh, an excellent uh, vampire henchman uh, to
0: uh, Mr. Frost here. I, this character is a lot of fun. This is a great villain. Uh, and I kind of get the feeling... That with this character, somebody watched Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark and they saw Bill mm-hmm. Paxton's character uh, as the as the always going nuts vampire dancing on tables, taunting people yeah. with, the, with the kind of southern accent. And to use a Goyerism, they said, I got to get me one of those.
1: Yeah, I think I can see the connection here. Yeah. Both also get crispy and keep on vamping. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, both fun characters with similar traits. I think Paxton and Logue each kind of make them their own. I think Paxton's character is maybe a little more um, Texan, and uh, Logue's character, Quinn, here is a little more dude, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, I can see the connection between these two. Anyway, in my opinion, Quinn is the, the best villain role in the in the film by far. Uh, though I do like the relationship that they develop between Quinn and Frost. Like, they 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 have a good vibe. So it's never one of these, it's not a situation where I'm like, oh, I wish it was just Quinn. Like, uh, I love Quinn when he's on the screen, but I also love his moments with Frost. Uh, they, they really work those out well.
0: There's a great scene where you think Frost is going to, like, cut off Quinn's arm, but he's just joking with him. He's like, no, 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 it's yeah. cool, I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some some nice little nods to like the, the the
1: very the subtle manipulation that Frost has in play over Quinn, um, but yeah, but they're bros. <laughs> he, they're, but there are bros. Yeah, but are they real? Like you know that Frost really is going. He never gets the chance to actually betray Quinn. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it's heavily implied that yeah, the
0: second that Frost has what he needs, Quinn is no longer necessary. Yeah, when he becomes the blood god, uh, and the blood god does not have any bros. Yeah. So,
1: Logue's TV screen career kicks off in the early 90s with a smattering of small TV roles. You see him on X-Files, you see him on Northern Exposure, as well as such films as 92 Sneakers, 93's Gettysburg. And uh, these smaller roles continue. He even pops up in 1996, Jerry Maguire. Um, He played Jimmy the Cab Driver in several MTV promos in the early 90s as well. I don't know if you remember these, Joe. No. Uh, just kind of a, a chance for outlandish character work from from Logue in those. Um. He's worked a lot since Blade, but some of the highlights uh, include uh, David Fincher's Zodiac in 2007. He was uh, on the TV series Vikings, and oh man, he has a really fun role in the biker series Sons of Anarchy. He plays an opiate-addicted renegade ex-U.S. Marshal named Lee Torek. Uh, he's oh, not wow. on the show a lot, but uh, he's, he really eats up the screen when he's on there.
0: Well, he's definitely a scene stealer in this movie, too, as a vampire who just repeatedly gets, like, burned and chopped up and stuff, but then comes back. Yeah, and he's, he's just full of energy. You know, he's, he's all
1: about enjoying the party, but he's also all about uh, bringing the fight to Blade.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
2: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: But you know, it wouldn't be a vampire movie if it didn't have Udo Kier in it. Yep, and Udo Kier is in it. <laughs> Plays uh,
1: Dragonetti. Uh, Dragonetti. This is our, yeah. our top vampire lord or vampire baron, at least in the local, um, uh, what is this? I don't even know what city this is supposed to be. I think they filmed parts of it in Canada and parts of it in California. Uh, it's vaguely, it's, it's not It's unimportant. It is just the city, some yeah. American big city.
0: It's never specified. Parts of it look more like an East Coast city, like New York. Parts of it definitely look like L.A., so I'm mm-hmm. I'm not sure but uh but yeah Udo Kier he is the CEO of the vampires in this movie. Yeah. So
1: Kier oh man Kier has been in a lot. So German-born actor with 275 credits on IMDb. Um uh, I don't know if I said I may have said it already. Born 1944, still very much alive, still active. He's one of these actors who seems to have been in everything and become an icon for this weird mix of popular but also art house and just utter b movies and, and and less than b like there's some yeah some really uh real really low budget looking like video game
0: adaptations he's been in um are you making but, a movie that you're filming on your cell phone udo Kier will be in it give him a call
1: <laughs> yeah you, if you meet the price he will he will show up and the thing and he's one of these guys that like even like no no none of these movies have slowed him down uh so he's he just keeps, keeps acting in things, and he'll pop up in some really good stuff here and there. Uh, but then he'll also be in something that's just, you know, complete trash, and nothing sticks to him. Yeah. Um, he, he started acting on screen in the late 60s and appeared in such films as a 1970s Mark of the Devil opposite uh, Herbert Lomb. In 73 and 74, he played both Baron Frankenstein and Count Dracula in Fresh Flesh for Frankenstein, not Fresh Flesh for Frankenstein (laughs) and Blood for Dracula, both famously produced in part by Andy Warhol. Hmm. So pretty legendary for those roles. Um, In 1977, he played Dr. Frank uh, Mandel. Is it Mandel or Mandel? I don't remember. But anyway, the movie is Dario Argento's Suspiria.
0: Yeah, he's like a character that the main character goes to talk to in a like a, a park outside an office building, and and he tells her about witches. Yeah, so Kier has
1: been in lots of European films, and in general, just lots of films. He was in '95's Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, he was in 1994's Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. He was in 1996's Barbed Wire. In 2000, he was in both Shadow of the Vampire and Dancer in the Dark. In 2001, he was in both Werner Herzog's Invincible. I believe that starred Tim Roth. And he was also in uh, Megiddo. Was it Megiddo? The Omega I Code guess.
0: I saw that in theaters. <laughs> Yeah. that's one of those, uh, uh, Christian apocalypse movies. It's all about the antichrist and the end times. The antichrist played, I think by, uh, Michael York, Basil exposition mm, yeah. from the Austin powers movies.
1: <laughs> in 2002, uh, Kiera was also in fear.com. He's like, of let course. me have some of that fear.com action. Yeah. And I will uh, go but, to that still, website. <laughs> don't do not try. I don't know. We can't vouch for that website. um, but uh, but again, artful and terrible movies kind of find a perfect balance in Udo Kier. And this trend continues to this very day. Most recently, his 2021 film, Swan Song, earned a great deal of praise in which he plays a formerly flamboyant hairdresser, uh, like hmm. an aging flamboyant hairdresser. And uh, yeah, that that one was, uh, you can, I was reading articles about that one on NPR. Oh, but Joe, he was in another movie that I know that you've mentioned
0: to me before. He was in 2004's Dracula 3000. <laughs> Yeah that's right. Uh Dracula 3000 is a direct-to-video sci-fi horror masterpiece starring <laughs> Casper Van Deen, who was in The First Omega Code movie by the way, to that's Connections right. Abound. Yeah. Uh but not just Casper Van Deen. so uh it's also got Coolio, uh Erica Eleniak <laughs> and Tommy Lister, Tiny Lister. Um mm. I I'm going to say I saw Dracula 3000 circa 2007, but The memory is firmly implanted because this is one of those movies that is not just bad. It's not just really bad. It's unusually bad. I think paying attention (laughs) to this entire movie should be like a standard test of Uh, willpower and sustained attention used in like training airline pilots. You know, if you're the the safety (laughs) technician at a power plant, you must watch Dracula 3000 and and be able to describe everything that happens afterwards. It's a, it, 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 that would be a feat of the brain. The plot is, I think that there's a spaceship helmed by Casper Van Deen. I think he's literally named captain Abraham Van Helsing. <laughs> and they uh, they ru- run across a derelict ship called the Demeter, uh, reference to Dracula, of course. And then they try to salvage it, but whoops, there's a vampire on board. But not a sci-fi vampire. So, imagine Frilly... <laughs> shirt huge collar black cape he's a halloween costume of a vampire but in in oh, this man. spaceship movie because it sounds like you're working up yeah to like a space
1: vampire like a um yeah uh, something like from planet of the vampires or something or something even more alien but yeah you shared a picture of this and yeah it's just straight up department store vampire
0: no he's literally just like i want to suck your blood and uh, so Udo Kier is in this movie, too, but he appears in such a way that, as, as a friend of mine put it at the time, it looks like he left his car running while he ran in to shoot his scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. He does not interact with the rest of the cast, as far as I recall. Uh, he plays the dead captain of the derelict ship, and his only scenes where he's acting are, like, video logs left behind And in these video logs, he's obviously reading his lines for the first time as he delivers them. So he's going straight off the cue cards and you can see his eyes going back and forth as he goes down each line of a bunch of whole, you know, like, oh, there's something on board. We are doomed. that, That kind of stuff. All right, uh, next up, I, I guess we, get, we got to try
1: and, and move, move a little quicker through these other names. But uh, we, we, so uh, we have Quinn as one of the, the vampire lackeys. We also have a character named Mercury. She's a super fast blonde vampire um, made, uh, played by Arlie Hover. Born 1971, Spanish dancer turned actor went on to appear in such films as *Vampires*, *Los Mirtos, *Empire of the Wolves*, and *David Fincher's The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo*. She uh, she vamps it up good here.
0: Yeah, she's great. She's she's uh, she does a, a good like a kind of wolf snarl. She's got good teeth for the role.
1: <laughs> That's something I was thinking about watching this film. A lot of folks have vampire teeth in, and. Uh-huh. Vampire teeth look cool, but they can also make your—the uh, this, this, prosthetic that goes in your mouth can make your, uh, your cheeks a little puffy. So mm-hmm. you kind of get that, that vampire teeth uh, cheek puff going on with a lot of the actors here. Mm, yeah. All right. Um, we also have uh, Tracy Lords in this playing the character Raquel. Uh, this is the vampire who leads our uh, bro victim <laughs> human to the vampire rave early on in the okay. film. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, just a small role. But uh, Lords, born '68, uh, who uh, basically transitioned out of notoriety into what would become a solid mainstream acting career. She was, uh, her first such role was in 1988's Not of This Earth, a remake of the Roger Corman classic that we've discussed on this show, huh. uh, directed by another name that comes up a lot Jim Wernarski. I've never seen this remake. I, I, I don't know that you should. Uh, it doesn't look <laughs> particularly good, uh, but it exists. I mean, especially given how great uh, the original Knot of this Earth was. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, any rate, she's been in a bunch of stuff. She was in John Waters' Crybaby not long after that. She did a lot of TV uh, for such series as MacGyver, Highlander, Tales from the Crypt, Melrose Place, Roseanne, Nash Bridges, and Will and Grace. Okay, smaller roles now. Uh, there's a character named Crease. He's basically a vampire underling that uh, ends up losing a hand to a booby trap. Played by Matt Schulz, born 72. Matt Schulz is interesting because he returns in Blade 2 as an entirely different vampire, um, a Blood Pack member named uh, Chupa. And Matt Schulz has, has been in a number of movies over the years, including 2001's Fast and the Furious and 2011's Fast Five, in which he plays a character named Vince. He was also in The Transporter. I think the basic situation is he did Blade and then he got jacked to do Fast and the Furious. <laughs> and then he came back in Blade Two and played a different jacked vampire.
0: I'm trying to remember who this guy is in any of these movies I've seen, and I can't. Okay, well, I mean, he was in
1: two of them, right? Like, he was—he must be part of what the family, right? Because he's called back. He came back in 2011.
0: I don't think so. I don't recall. Uh, he's, maybe it was a flashback. This is this is not. This is not Vin Diesel. This is not ludicrous. <laughs> this is uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Well, moving along, we're getting
1: into bit players here now, but i have to point out that that, uh, greg uh, okamura is in this playing an uncredited vampire he's one of the vampire lords there are a number of really cool looking vampire lords sitting around the table with udo most of none of them do anything most of them do not talk but several of them look really cool and okamura certainly looks cool hawaiian born american actor stuntman and martial artist you've definitely seen in something um even if it's just uh, playing Wing Kong Hatchet Man in 1986 his Big Trouble in Little China, uh, he's, he, he's the one that has like two, I think, golden revolvers in his, in his hands. Hmm. He also pops up in such films as The Octagon, Samurai Cop, The Shadow,
0: Mortal Kombat, the 95 version, Bloodsport 3, and much more. Oh, who was he in the 95 Mortal Kombat I watched that probably a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember him specifically, but uh-huh. yeah, he has a real, he has a real cool look. You know, he's got this,
1: uh, this long beard, bald head, you know, kind of a tough uh-huh. guy look. So yeah, he's very much this kind of guy. He does some stunts, but also you're like, oh, he looks too cool to not have him more on camera more. Can he at least stand in the background?
0: I don't remember if he has a line in Blade, but you were right about the, he does not. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 sort of board of directors of vampires being very ineffectual and not having much to say or do other than stand around and like look terrified by frost. I think occasionally one of them will just like like squeak like, "Well, I'm a coward, so I don't know." <laughs> Yeah.
1: Or they'll be a little bit smug and be like, you have, you have frost. You have no idea what you're doing or to one of the underlings, you know, he's going to get you all killed. Right. And that sort of, but that's all that it ever amounts to. All right. Note on the music. Uh, Mark Isham did the music here. Um, Born 1951. Solid score, in my opinion. You know, it hits all the right action beats, but also we have a number of sequences that are more ambient and ethereal in nature, be it like a blade meditation scene or one of those Mm. driving through the dreary daytime city scene uh, that I feel like, like really, those are the moments where you really have a chance for the score to shine.
0: Though in an as was the style at the time, note uh, this movie also has a lot of Rob. Would you would you call it acid techno? Yes, yeah. There's there's some there's some fun hip hop in it as well. But uh-huh. yeah, some
1: of the key scenes involve some like a massive drop of, of acid techno.
0: So yeah, there there are several points where like oh Blade gets out the sword and then immediately it's down 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 yeah know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love it. But
1: uh, anyway, score-wise, Mark Isham also did such films as 2004's Crash, uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, 2007's The Mist, Time Cop, Romeo is (laughs) Bleeding, Fire in the Sky, Point Break, The Hitcher, Trouble in Mind, uh, which I mentioned earlier, Never Mm -hmm. Cry Wolf from 83. Uh, He was nominated for an Oscar for 1992's A River Runs Through It. Uh, So, yeah, he's he's a big deal and is still working. Cool. Now, a quick note on the stunts and fights. Uh, there are a few different names that are tied up in the, the stunt work and choreography. Henry King Jr. and Jeff Imada are credited with stunt coordinator honors. Imada is a longtime stuntman and martial artist who has worked in tons of notable films, including Blade Runner, Dreamscape, Prince of Darkness, and Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, wow. He's in Big Trouble in Little China. He's one of the kidnappers at the airport. Okay. And on top of this, martial arts choreographer credits go to both Wesley Snipes himself and Jeff Ward, another longtime stuntman.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit hyundaiusa.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. All right, let's let's
1: let's bust into the plot of Blade a bit more, huh?
0: All right, so I guess uh, we we will talk about the opening. The opening has a kind of prologue that takes place in 1967 where you're in a hospital. It's that dreamy kind of camera work that lets you know, oh, the, this is not, the whole movie is not going to be like this. So, you know, it'll take place in the present, don't worry. Mm-hmm. But it's 67, uh, and you see a woman being rushed through a hospital on a stretcher, and she's about to give birth, but she also has vampire bite marks on her neck and you see like her ID falls on the ground, I think. You see her name is Vanessa Brooks, and it's implied mm-hmm. that she dies. So that's the background. And then we get credits, and we see uh, over the credits there are some sped-up, time-lapse shots of a city. I was trying to figure out what city, but I think it's just it's intentionally nonspecific. A side note on this cinematography, I was thinking, what is the effect on the viewer created by time-lapse footage of human activity in a city. And to my mind, it has a kind of de-individuation effect because you can't focus on any individual person and instead only see kind of trails or lines. You see masses of humans blurring together into just patterns of movement. Or you see the effects of their behavior and projects over time. So you might see buildings being assembled or garbage piling up or something. And in this sense, it kind of makes you think of the humans in the city more like ants in a nature documentary, not as individuals, but as a kind of collective effect, an undifferentiated mass of biology traveling along certain lines, which I Mm. think actually works really well in the intro for a vampire movie. It has the eerie effect of letting us see humans more like how the vampires do, kind of like we're herds of livestock without individual identities. So I I think that's a very smart choice of technique for the opening of Blade.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, short-lived creatures that uh, that burn through life so quickly, and it's these older beings, these long-lived beings that prey upon them.
0: Now, then we get to the real opening, which is you see two people on a date. I think one of them is Tracy Lords, and they're, like, winding their way through a meat packing warehouse and mm-hmm. leading into a secret club. There's, like, a bouncer at the door. They go into a club, and w- immediately we're thinking, okay, is this a vampire club? It's got to be. It's full of, you know, dancers. There's one dancer there who can kind of teleport. I think that's um, – what's her name? Who? Oh, Mercury, yeah. Mercury, yeah. And they're playing... Uh, at first, I was like, is this EDM? But Robbie corrected me. So this would be Acid Techno? Yeah, this is definitely Acid Techno in this scene. So there's a very gray and blue color palette, kind of pale colors. Uh, the DJ has flashlights strapped to his glasses. I think we see Stephen Dorff wandering around in the crowd. The rave scene mm-hmm. is very late 90s. But then we see the DJ, like unveils a giant uh banner saying blood bath and then what do you know the sprinkler system kicks on and it's just spraying blood on everybody (laughs) this is before we started recording seth was asking me oh is blade the movie where the sprinklers come on and it's blood and we we talked about it and i was thinking i don't think that would work because wouldn't the blood kind of like clump up or coagulate and clog up the sprinkler system I, i just don't think you could do that it's a special system that was probably
1: custom yeah. uh, installed uh, because you know, you know, we, we find out the vampires are into everything. They're, they can have custom tech installed. Um, the, they get human the plumbers things, to do that <laughs> um, Well if they are they're they're vampire familiars. they have the, yeah. the glyph on the back of their neck and they're right they know exa- they install these in cities across the United States and, and Europe and, and beyond.
0: But they, uh, so the the blood comes on and then the human dude who's been led in there, he starts panicking and then all the vampires are like hissing and bearing their fangs at him. They're like really salting the meat with this guy. They don't just bite and drink his blood. They're like, try- it seems like they're trying to scare him to death. Yeah, this whole sequence
1: is fun to sort of try and figure out because, yeah, so there's the vampires want to drink blood, but they also want blood to come through the sprinkler system and fall on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to drain this man's blood, but also they kind of want to beat him up and scare him. And yeah. so I, I was, the, the main way I was able to make sense of this is that, okay, nothing that we, that we as humans in our life, nothing that we like or love do we love as much as a vampire loves blood? Like a vampire has so many, like a vampire can't feel emotions about most things, but a vampire feels like all emotions about blood. And mm-hmm. therefore, they're like, yes, I want blood. I want blood to rain on me. I want. I want to make love to the blood. I also want to beat the blood up. I want to drink the blood. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to, to uh, just blood, blood, blood. That's all they can think about. And so this is the uh, the the very sort of um, of of experience, the very sort of room that a vampire would want to find itself
0: in. That's very astute. I think that is exactly what they're going for. So this guy's toast, right? Like, there's just no yeah. way out. Of course, they're going to drain him. I mean, it's like this club has, uh, I don't know, one or maybe a few humans in it, and then uh, 500 vampires. I mean, this is not a good ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guy's crawling away in terror, sloshing through the blood until he, like, crawls up on a big steel-toed boot, and you see the bottom of a long black leather coat flapping. What? Who's this? Immediately, the crowd panics. They're like, that's him. It's the day walker. And then fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Blade is here. Wesley Snipes looks awesome. He's got the the sunglasses indoors. He's got the, you know, lots of black leather. He's got the body armor on. He's got the the vampire hunter Batman utility belt. So I think he's got a shotgun that shoots silver and when it hits the vampires they dissolve into gray and orange CGI ash and then he's got little silver stakes. And he's got a katana that I guess must have silver in it. And he's got some kind of boomerang made out of silver lasers. I think he can throw like bombs of garlic sauce. It, it, and he, of course, does martial arts. So he's he's just unloading uh, all, of, all of the fighting skills on this club full of uh, monsters. Yeah, it just tears into them. And it's marvelous. There was a really funny part where a vampire grabs two meat hooks off the wall that look like they're there for decoration, I guess because <laughs> it's a meat packing district or something, and then runs at blades swinging the swinging the meat hooks like nunchucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes him out. Uh, but then Donald Logue comes out. Uh, this is our vampire Quinn. Uh, who has got a like big red beard and he's, uh, he's, he's got a bunch of goons with sunglasses and he's like, that's him. Get him. We're going to jack you up. Make him hurt bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get a big fight scene, a bunch of waves of dudes in, in very distinctive late nineties, bad guy outfits. So it's all black clothes. Sunglasses inside, finger gloves, black wool caps—that kind of look. Of course, Blade beats them all. Then he pins Donald Logue to the wall with spikes, and uh, uh, and uh, Quinn here—he he seems to be speaking some ancient language. I think there's a there's a vampire language in this movie. Yeah, and yeah, the part of the plot ends
1: up revolving around vampire uh, runes and glyphs that can't quite be
0: deciphered, and so forth. Uh, But Blade tells him, okay, I'm tired of... He says, I'm tired of chopping you up. This time I'll try fire. And he sets the vampire on fire. And then police show up. Uh, Blade quickly checks the party guy for bite marks. He has none, so he lets him go. Then Blade disappears. And we cut straight to the hospital where Quinn's uh, charred cadaver has arrived. They're like, ooh, charred cadaver for you. And so here we're about to meet a major character, the hematologist Karen Jensen, played by N'Boucher Wright. And, uh, some, uh, uh, so at first we have her and some other doctor or pathologist. I don't remember the character's name, but, uh, my main thing about this other guy is I'm sorry, this guy just does not look like a doctor. I know a doctor can look like anything, (laughs) but this guy looks like he's in a Beatles cover band. He has a floppy, like Paul McCartney mop cut. He just, I don't buy it. He does seem like a pretty useless character at the time, but.
1: The, 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 it becomes
0: a. It becomes clear that it's an economic choice later on in the picture. Yes. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so he and, he and Karen are talking and she's analyzing the blood sample from the cadaver and things are not adding up. She seems skeptical that the blood she's looking at actually came out of a dead person. And she says the red blood cells are biconvex, which is impossible. Uh, a little bit of monster science. I did some digging on this. Red blood cells are in fact normally biconcave, meaning there's a little dip in the middle of the disc, like a, like a Bialy. A biconvex red blood cell would be one that bulged out in the middle on both sides, really making it more like a sphere, and there are in fact medical conditions that cause red blood cells to become shaped more like a sphere, these are known as spherocytosis. People with spherocytosis often experience uh, hemolytic anemia, which is where the spleen mistakes these spherical red blood cells for damaged or dead cells and then destroys them, leading to the problem that the body is constantly attacking and eliminating its own blood supply. Now, this may be fleshed out more in the, in the comics or the, the Blade lore, uh, but I feel like this is a, a bit of physiology in the movie that it, they don't go into great detail about, but it really fits pretty well with the vampire mythos. Like the vampires have mm-hmm. a condition where their bodies are constantly destroying their own blood supply and they must replenish it.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, somebody did their homework, You know, maybe Goyer, maybe somebody else.
0: Anyway, Dr. Jensen uh, and this other doctor talk, and he's like, come look at this body. It's weird. And she's <laughs> she says, I thought you promised to give me some distance. So they clearly have a romantic history, but it's all over now. And he's like, no funny business. I just want you to come to the morgue with me. Uh, so, you know, they, they go and investigate the body. Uh, she notices, wow, the maxilla looks a little deformed. The maxilla is the upper jaw. And she's like, there's some odd muscle structure around the canines. They're cutting this charred body with fangs open uh, and, and then the guy is in fact he's like hey want to get back together <laughs> <And> they, <laughs> they, they argue about that for a minute and then just sudden vampening. the crispy donald mm-hmm. pops up he kills the dude he bites karen you think he's gonna kill her too you think she's done for but then suddenly here's blade in the hospital and he's like i came back to finish you off Uh, And there's a brief fight, which is funny because the crispy vampire is obviously very slippery and sliding around, which is gross. But the police show up (laughs) and shoot Blade a bunch of times, and he just yells at them in a moment that's quite hilarious. Yeah, he says the F. Yeah. Um, And then Blade cuts the vampire's arm off, but the vampire escapes, jumping out a window, running off into an alleyway. He snarls like a puma. And then uh, Karen's down on the hospital floor. She's gasping for help, and Blade's about to walk away at first, but then he, uh, you know, he sort of he has a moment of compassion, and he picks her up and takes her with him. And the cops give chase. They shoot Blade like a hundred times, but he's fine. He's got the armor on. He's all, you know, he's great. Uh, and then Blade jumps across the sky to the roof of another building, and then they escape in the Blade Mobile, which is great. Blade drives like a sick muscle car. <laughs> they get back to the the hideout the fortress of blatitude and it's in some abandoned industrial park you know there's pipes and chains and catwalks everywhere that's another late 90s action movie thing you got to have yeah. like industrial building it takes place in somewhere that used to be a factory there's catwalks galore uh we hear credence clearwater revival playing it's bad moon rising of course and we meet whistler here's Chris Kristofferson, who's got glorious long white hair and a beard to match. Whistler is like a rock and roll Santa Claus or like a rogue biker grandpa. Yep, yep. And he's like, oh, you're bringing home strays now? Oh, You should have killed her. And Blade says, yeah, I know, but I didn't. Uh, and uh, so they decide, well, okay, we'll watch her. We'll see if she turns uh, or see if we can treat her. And uh, they give her, to try to treat her vampire bite, they give her an injection of garlic juice, which is straight goes straight into the neck. It's supposed to mm-hmm. stave off the transformation or slow it down or something. And when they give her the injection, you see puffs of smoke coming out of the holes in her neck. Uh, After this, we we do get a scene at the vampire. It's like a bank, you know, where the vampires hang out. It's the corporate board of vampiredom. Uh, Rob, how would you describe this scene? Oh, it's like a dark, gothic crypt of a meeting room,
1: uh, occupied by various, again, scary-looking vampire lords, uh, very very regal in their own ways. Uh, Clearly, they're going for, like, this feeling of, like, these are different... Uh, you know, from different uh, lineages of of, of vampire history. Uh, But again, we find out that they are all completely inept and utterly harmless.
0: Right. All they do, they gather here to discuss the things they're afraid of. They're like, oh, Udo Kier says, Blade, it's a daywalker. He's still pursuing this ridiculous crusade against us. And then they invite Mm -hmm. in Deacon Frost to tell him that he's a loose cannon. Again, this is Stephen Dorff. He's the young, hip, good-looking bad boy vampire. Uh, he's not like these buttoned-up square vampires, and they're like, you know, you're you're a loose cannon uh, because there is a treaty that I think should prevent vampires from gathering in large numbers and frost-runs nightclubs that violate this treaty. And they say, like, human politicians could make things very difficult for our kind if they found out about us. And I was like, I don't know, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what would that look like? (laughs) Frost thinks the vampires are being too timid. He's like, hey, humans are food. You know, we should rule them, not hide from them. Yeah,
1: and again, yeah, they're very timid. Uh, Again, one of the big positive steps that del Toro makes in Blade 2 is making sure that old vampires are scary. Old vampires are inhuman and monstrous. uh, And they have, not only are they scary, but they have scary plans. In Blade 1, yeah, they're just smug and complacent.
0: Right, and they they mock Frost by saying, like, "Oh, you're not even a, a a pure blood vampire." I think the distinction is that they were born vampires to vampire parents, and Frost was just bitten and turned by someone, and they sort of disdain him for that. Yeah, and this is this is a moment where you are just kind of left to imagine this for yourself. The
1: idea of mm. vampire mothers giving birth to baby vampires like uh, yeah. Udo Kier was once a vampire baby Udo Kier and we just have to to briefly imagine what that consists of and what that was like
0: did he drink blood as a baby out of a bottle yeah <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so then we go back and visit uh, our heroes again. Frost, uh, um, oh, uh, Blade visits like an apothecary shop where he buys, I don't know, his regular doses of like essence of garlic. And then he also gets a serum, which he uses to stave off I don't know. He, he Basically, the deal is, we'll find this out in more detail later, but Blade is like half of a vampire. He's got some vampire characteristics, but not others. He can go out in the daytime and all that, uh, but he does need blood, and he's like, well, I'm good now, so I can't drink people's blood, so I've got to get injections of this serum, whatever this is, and mm-hmm. there's there's generally concern in the movie. Like We hear from Whistler that uh, he's building up a tolerance for the serum, and it's not working as well as it used to, and he's got to find a solution uh meanwhile uh Karen who the, the hematologist who they brought back she like witnesses them talking about all this and witnesses Blade getting a dose of his serum uh, and finally, uh, and she's a little bit freaked out, but finally, like, they explain everything to her. Whistler introduces himself. His name is Abraham Whistler, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the scene where he's lighting a cigarette while he's pumping gas into the Blade mobile, and Whistler <laughs> kind of gives her, like, a Vampire's 101. It's like, uh, they're called Hominus Nocturna, and we find that Whistler and Blade hunt them. They follow their movements. They go from city to city, and she says, oh, so do you use crosses? And they say, no, crosses do not work. They're very pointed about this. They say vampires are allergic to silver and garlic and to sunlight, specifically UV rays. Uh, by the way, Whistler has rigged up a UV flashlight that I guess they can shine at vampires to hurt them. Though one, of the, one thing in this movie is that apparently vampires are fine going out in the daytime if they just put sunscreen on. This is literally a plot point. And I'm like, <laughs> why don't they just do that all the time then? Um, I get it's a lot of sunscreen. It's oily, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I know. I know because. that. I don't like the feeling of sunscreen either, but I mean, if you're but, but the you other option it is a
1: responsible thing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so they explained to Karen, they're like, look, you got to get out of town now that you've been exposed to the vampires, they're going to be on the hunt for you. Uh, She thinks she can go to the police, but nope, vampires own the police, apparently. And Whistler gives her Vampire Mace, which is a spray canister of garlic and colloidal silver. So I think she's going to go off and do her own thing. Oh, and then in the meantime, we get a, a really funny scene with Udo Kier and Frost, where like Udo Kier goes into the... I don't know, the vampire computer bank the archives i guess mm-hmm. and he walks in and frost is in there with like a laptop running doing all kind of weird ai stuff on these like glyphs and uh, and he's like you're using a computer to decipher the ancient text you fool the ancient text can never be translated you wouldn't even understand them and frost is just petulantly like yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh and then there I think one of the, does uh, does Udo Kier slap Frost in the face. Oh yeah. Yeah, this is mad, at least you know they they create the effect of him just really slapping
1: the heck out of him and and uh, Udo has like all the veins in his his head bulging
0: after uh-huh. he does it. It's it's uh, it's very nice. It's a good slap. Uh but then Blade drops Karen off in the city and he is a reckless driver. He is not <laughs> he is not respecting pedestrians. Um <laughs> So she goes into her building, and then there's a scene I thought was very cool, because, you know, he's like, keep your eyes open. but she's like, but it's daytime, shouldn't I be safe now at least? But uh, she goes into her building, and then she gets into the elevator, and she notices that there are people in the elevator who have these weird tattoos on the back of their necks, these little square glyphs. Uh, and I really liked this scene. I think I remember this scene from way back when I watched it in the day. I was like, "Oh wow, it's a big conspiracy!" You know, it's like there are humans who are in on it. And of course, we find out that the humans with the glyphs on their necks are vampire familiars. Like they belong to a particular vampire, and they do work for them during the daytime or in other you know other things vampires can't do. And uh, they're hoping that if they are a good familiar the vampire will their, their 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 appointed vampire will eventually turn them, which is a major theme also in what we do in the shadows yeah yeah this is this is classic vamp stuff I mean I guess I, I was this
1: was this a deal that was in place in Dracula between Renfield and uh, his lordship
0: I do not recall what was in it for
1: Renfield I mean he was in it for the bugs yeah. and, and the glory. Uh or, yeah, but uh beyond that I don't remember if there was any because it's it's become such a frequent trope of the vampire familiar relationship in fiction that I, mm-hmm. I honestly can't remember if it's in Dracula or not.
0: Yeah, I couldn't say. Well so anyway, so Karen goes back to her apartment. Um she gets a visit from a police officer. He's like, Hi, I'm Officer Krieger. Uh for a second I thought this guy was Matthew Perry from Friends, but no, it's not it's just mm-hmm. a guy who kind of looks like him. Uh, this is also, I thought, a great scene. Uh, can Rob, would you describe what happens here? I mean, basically he has a, a it seems like he has a, a plausible
1: story. He's like, yeah, yeah, your front door was open. Your coworker said you're missing. You were kidnapped. So I'm just checking in on you. And then it becomes, but we, we quickly realize, oh, this guy's also a familiar. He's here. He's up to no good. But then Blade shows up and proceeds to beat the crap out of this cop for like six solid minutes of film time.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, And he's like, you work for this glyph says you belong to Deacon Frost. We've been tracking Frost for a long time. Uh, And they find out that this cop is transporting blood for a vampire owned blood bank, which that was a LOL moment for me. I was like, oh, my God, the vampires own blood banks. Brilliant of course they do yeah they're involved in everything and of course they're going to own the blood banks and I love how in the scene right after this Blade gets away with beating up a uniformed police officer in the streets and nobody cares (laughs)
3: Um,
0: but then uh, the cop gets away like he runs off and um, and Karen's a little upset that she was used as bait but she decides well okay at this point I just got to stick with Blade it's the only way I'm going to survive long enough to find a cure Mm -hmm. for a vampire bite so they, they stake out the, uh, the familiars police car. And then when he finally comes back, they tail him to a vampire club. Uh, and there's, uh, uh, it, there's a great part where Frost, like he goes into the club after him, uh, because they're trying to find the, I don't know, the archives or the secret place. And he's like, give Frost a message from me. Tell him it's open season on all suckheads." <laughs> <laughs> so was that line in the script or did, did, did Snipes make that up? I don't know. I I, I I vaguely remember there being some
1: ad libs. I think maybe some of the more famous Blade-isms are the creation of, of
0: Snipes himself, uh, so I'm not sure. Today's episode is brought to you by, technically speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: So meanwhile,
0: Frost is throwing a party in his penthouse, but he's not partying. He's busy translating the ancient texts like Udo Kier mm-hmm. told him not to do. So he's got his Apple laptop really, really burning the CPU. Uh, and it finally finishes translating. And the translation, I didn't understand how this would work at all, but the translation appears to somehow construct a virtual reality environment of like a machine that would be used in a vampire ritual. Well, vampires at the day had access to those, those really advanced MacBooks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh,
0: They were working with tech that we didn't have yet. Uh, but here, Oh, also we see Quinn is back, you know, he's regenerated. Mm -hmm. He, he grows back the, the limbs he's lost and stuff, though he still looks kind of nasty and the Mm -hmm. cop shows up to be like, Oh, I got some bad news, you know, blades onto you. And then frost just, uh, uh, frost just kills the cop and they're like okay we got to get blade alive. So uh, in the next scene there is uh the next scene I thought was really unpleasant. There's this like big immobile mm-hmm. jab of the hut type vampire who they who blade and Karen torture with a uv flashlight in order to get information out of him and I found this scene really nasty.
1: Yeah, because the, the vampire who we learn its name is Pearl comes off is really more to be pitied than to be blamed. It, so it, it really yeah. feels like kind of a mean spirited scene that that also doesn't really I don't know. I, I, I mean, evidently they had to come and get information from somebody. This is a find the a, you know find an informant sequence in the investigation. But I don't know. It would have. It seems like it would have worked better had Pearl been doing anything other than just sitting around looking at a computer
0: and i was also like why is he a different type of creature than the other vampires like we didn't we don't see any other vampires who are like i don't know what whatever this type of vampire is yeah and
1: i mean i'm all for there being you know multiple vampire species and you know go go go, enti- go entirely vampire the masquerade on this business by by all means but uh, yeah none of it's actually
0: explained Well, anyway, so the vampire screams about how uh, La Magra is coming. The spirits of the 12 Mm -hmm. will awaken, uh, will awaken the blood God. And they the, so the, they discover, Blade and, and Karen discover this back room with the Book of Erebus, which they call the Vampire Bible. So it's, you know, get, they're getting the backstory. They're, they're learning what's going on. But then big fight breaks out because, of course, Quinn is back. All his all his goons are there with him. Uh, big fight scene. And, and you think Blade is actually done for. They, like, pin him down. How's he going to get out of this? But then it's Deus Ex Whistler. Chris Christopherson shows up and saves the day. Uh, right
1: before Whistler shows up, there's some great gloating from Quinn, including this scene where he pulls off his glove and shows off his mostly regenerated monster hand, which mm-hmm. is a little bit floppy and grotesque. Uh, g- great sequence. Another great scene for Quinn to shine.
0: So this is another big action sequence that the fight eventually leads off into a subway tunnel next to a moving train, which must be like six miles long, by the way, because it's just constantly going by forever. Once again, Blade beats Quinn uh, with Karen's help this time. She like stabs him with Blade's sword and and helps out on the fight. And and uh, they also cut off the other hand this time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then Quinn runs away. Uh, and they escape uh, blade and Karen escape by hopping onto the subway train. Oh, and Karen repays a favor from earlier. So earlier in the movie, her shoulders dislocated and, and blade pops it back into place in this scene, his is dislocated and she pops it back into place. So, you know, I pop and you pop. There you go. So here we get uh, more backstory. There's exposition about well, you know, how Blade ended up the way he is. How Whistler gives a, a, a sermon sort of on how Blade works. He says, you know, I found him when he was 13. He was drinking blood. We also get Whistler's backstory. We learn that his family was tragically killed by vampires, and he's been hunting vampires ever since. And uh, he says, you know, we fight them, but it's just getting worse. There's something going on in the vampire ranks, and, and Frost is behind it. Uh, So they're, they're trying to understand the hidden politics within the vampire organization. Uh, the, the basic things we learn about blade are that you know he can he has some vampire attributes but not others because uh, his his mother was bitten right before he was born. so uh, so he like can go out in the daytime uh, and he has the super strength of the vampire so you think it's like the best of both worlds but he also does need blood and that's like the serum problem that we learned about earlier. Yeah. There was a very funny soul-searching scene that came after this. He says, like, I'm not human. And um, and Karen says, you look human to me. And he says, humans don't drink blood. And then she's like, you know, that was a long time ago. Maybe you need to let that go. <laughs> you know, you haven't drank blood for quite some time. <laughs> So at this point, I think I think my summary's got to become much more cursory. Uh, so, so, oh, there's a great moment back in the vampire compound where Quinn is back after the fight. His face is all torn up because Blade held his face against the passing train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, he's also got a missing hand again and like their vampire buddies there in the room are just like chewing on his stump and he's yeah, like, or hey, cut that out.
1: Yeah. He's supposed to be bandaging his hand or
0: something. And the can't help. It's like a dog, right? Just has to, yeah. has to have a bite. Uh, but they talk more about, well, we gotta, we gotta take blade alive. Uh, oh, and then we see them make moves against the board of directors of vampires. They take Udo Kier out to the beach for uh, execution by sunrise which is yeah. has some kind of bad looking special effects but i also kind of liked them yeah it's a weird special effects sequence because it's not
1: it doesn't feel completely cgi it almost has kind of a stop motion quality to it uh it's any kind of he kind of smolders then kind of melts and then kind of petrifies and then explodes
0: so <laughs> yeah. they fit it all in meanwhile uh, Karen has been doing some hematology science so she's working on a cure for herself and for blade uh, though blade will end up not taking it in the end because it not only it would cure his need for blood but it would also make him lose his superpowers and in the end mm-hmm. he's like no I gotta I gotta fight vampires so I'm sorry um, but she's able to cure herself and she figures out that an anticoagulant called edTA, Uh, makes vampire blood explode so she makes a bunch of injectors of this stuff for uh for blade and there are some glorious vampire pump up explosions later on oh absolutely
1: glorious yes
0: Let's see. So a few other scenes to mention. There's a scene where Blade goes into the city for serum, but then Frost shows up like he's just standing in a park Mm -hmm. slathered in sunblock. It it is daytime, Uh, but he's got a human hostage. And then he gives Blade the whole we're not so different. You and I speech. He's like, why don't you join us?
1: Yeah. Like you're going to you're going to make Blade switch sides. This is Blade after all. So Frost
0: is totally trying to ice skate uphill in this scene. (laughs) Right. Uh, and then, uh, but so, yeah, that, that does not go as Frost planned, though. Frost does try to execute his chi- human child hostage and Blade saves the kid's life. Uh, so Blade, Blade is kind of harsh. Like, he doesn't show a lot of niceness or compassion, but he, d- he does come through in a pinch and, and help the humans out. Yeah, it's a nice purely
1: superhero move and a reminder that yeah, Blade is a superhero and he still has that humanity, uh, especially after you know, the, the previous sequences where a lot of it is about the struggle for his humanity and is he slipping, is he doomed to fall into the night um, uh, you know, with these vampires and so forth.
0: But whoops, while Blade was out in the city, out running errands, uh, the vampires attack the hideout. And they, they, they kidnap Karen, and oh no, Whistler has been turned. And so there's a scene where, well, you think Whistler uh, kills himself because he's going to turn into a vampire. Apparently that doesn't take, and he's back in the sequel.
1: Right, right. Um, yeah, the screenplay tried to kill him, but you can't keep a great character down. Um, so yeah, he's back for the sequel. Don't worry about him. Even though it, it does seem like he is tortured nearly to death and then forced to take his own life.
0: But here, uh, from this point out, it's just like showdowns until the yeah. end. So, you know, Blade attacks the the penthouse uh, where he meets his mom, who it turns out yep. she's been alive this whole time because she was turned into a vampire. And now she's bad. So you think it's going to be nice that he meets her, but she's like, well, no, I'm a vampire now. And when you become a vampire, you become evil. So I'm evil and I don't like you.
1: Yeah. And just talking about it here, you might think, "What? Well, well, is it was it necessary for Blade to become Hamlet for a little bit? Uh, in this film, and it might sound like it's unnecessary, but like beat by beat, I feel like this this uh, part of the narrative is also really important to break up the action and, uh, yeah. and really propel things forward.
0: Uh, yeah, and so Blade is captured by Frost's uh, uh, vampire army, and Frost is going to use Blade's uh, half vampire blood for a ritual, which is going to summon the blood God or turn frost into the blood God, I think. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, so blade is imprisoned and then you do the ritual. Uh, he, uh, blade is saved by Karen. They try to execute Karen by throwing her into a zombie pit. Apparently sometimes when you bite a human, they don't turn into a vampire. Instead they turn into a zombie and it's, Hey, it's her old friend, her old ex boyfriend, the doctor who's got the, the beetle haircut, uh, he's a he's a zombie now, and he tries to eat her in a pit, but she escapes, and then she saves the day. She like unlocks Blade's uh, cage and gets him out, so he can he can oh oh oh. And then she's also like, you need to drink my blood to regain your strength, so you can fight all the bad guys. And this is exactly how it goes down. Um,
1: Blade proceeds to just absolutely whomp all underlings within reach. And this yeah. is a this is a whole sequence where you know it's great martial arts action, but there's certainly some intended martial arts physical humor in this, and I'm sure there's a name for this in Hong Kong cinema that I'm just not aware of. But like Blade is just taking out lackeys left and right, uh, and it all reaches a fever pitch for me when Blade. Uh, has he's downed a vampire underling, perhaps a vampire? I think it's a vampire, and then proceeds to kick the vampire multiple times with both feet in the groin, and then finally kicks the vampire so hard in the groin that the vampire flies up onto his feet again, and then he stakes <laughs> oh. him or something. It's marvelous.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah, there there are parts that kind of remind me of like the uh, the physical comedy within the fight choreography that you see in like some Jackie Chan movies.
1: And, and in all this, we also uh, dispense with some of the underlings. Mercury gets taken out by Karen. She sp- sprays her in the mouth with the, the garlic silver stuff and her head explodes. Yeah. Quinn has a, has a wonderful death sequence where basically at the very start of the battle, he jumps at Blade and is like, I'm going to take you out and Blade uh, uh, beheads him with, a, with
0: a, like a zip line. Uh, it's pretty great. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, when, he, when he immediately takes out Quint, it's very much like the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indy pulls out the revolver. <laughs> it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, yeah. that, that's, that's done. Yeah, and he catches the shades, puts them on,
1: and then it's on. Yeah.
0: Oh, because, because Donald Logue stole his, his sunglasses, which is, you do mm-hmm. not take Blade's sunglasses. Yeah, that's the final straw. Uh, there is a weird scene where Blade has to stake his mom, but he explains it. He's like, I, I'm setting you free. I'm releasing you because it's not really her anymore because she's a vampire. Is that That's how I mm-hmm. read that.
1: But now it's really, it's just final showdown. It is yeah. it's Frost versus Blade, except Frost isn't quite frost anymore because he's managed to pull off this ceremony, this ritual. There's kind of like a kind of like a Raiders of the Lost ark esque soul capture and absorption of the vampire CGI souls. And yeah. now Frost is La Magra. Frost has these superhuman blood vampire powers and he might just be too much for blade to take out.
0: Yeah. There's a scene where blade like cuts frost in half, but then blood jumps out of his two halves and like grabs itself and pulls him back together. So he's indestructible now.
1: Yeah. Like blade goes to say the F and he can't even say the F
0: out loud. He has to mount the F instead. In the end though, how how do you defeat the blood God? Well, how about some anticoagulant? Oh yeah, so yeah. The,
1: finally, there's some some wonderful uh, drama in the fight involving having to get a hold of those um, those vials of the of the anticoagulant. Blade is able to get it and stabs uh, Frost with one of these vials, and then proceeds to just pelt him with the vials. Like a dozen of these vials are now stuck in Frost, filling him with the stuff. And we get a wonderful like hyper bloat and explode scene, and a wonderful bladeism from Blade himself, where he tells us that some mother effers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Um, you can we it's can discuss beautiful. back and forth what it means, but you, you don't even have to. It's clear what it means. It's all in the context. You, it's a, it's one of the greatest lines in cinematic history.
0: It's like poetry. Okay, I think that's everything I have to say about Blade. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, well, what else can you say except, uh, you know, they, they imply at the end that there will be more Blade and lo and behold, there was more Blade. And lo and behold, there will be more Blade because we know now that uh, Mahershala Ali is going to play Blade in an upcoming Marvel Cinematic Universe film. And, uh, yeah, I think this is terrific casting. With Delroy Lindo in it as well, I can't help but wonder if he's going to play the new Whistler. Huh. Um, I, I have other questions as well. Like, are we going to have to put up with scenes of where Blade is hanging out with Doctor Strange? Or are they uh. going to let it be mostly uh, its own world? Are they going to let Blade say the F in this? I have no idea.
0: Oh, yeah. Can you make an R-rated MCU film? I don't, I don't really know anything about that. Yeah,
1: I'm, isn't it like sometimes they say, okay, you can say the F X number of times uh, and still not have <laughs> okay. an R. But can you ask Blade – can you limit Blade in that fashion? I don't know.
0: Mm, okay, well, I guess I got to see the other older Blade movies first. Uh, I'm kind of exa- – I mean, I like Mahershala Ali, but, uh, but it's also hard for me to imagine anybody but Wesley Snipes in this role. It, it's like, as we were saying earlier, it just is identical to him, the actor –
1: yeah, it is. It, it is very hard to to imagine anyone other than Snipes. But I think Ali could do it. I think he has he has the acting chops. He has the the physicality, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I read that that he 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 got Snipes blessing. So, oh, okay, we'll, we'll see. But who knows? Maybe Snipes will be in it. Maybe Snipes will be the new Whistler. Now that would be something. Ooh, okay. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it develops. All right. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close the casket on this one. Oh, we didn't even talk about the cool space age caskets they had in this, the sleeping mm. caskets. Um, but anyway, we're going to go and close the casket on this one. We're going to go ahead and put a stake in it. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there who has thoughts on Blade, uh, this movie, Blade, other Blade films, uh, films from this era. Uh, right in, we would love to hear from you. Weird House Cinema of course, publishes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed every Friday. We're mostly a science and culture podcast, but on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Uh, I blog about these episodes at Samudamusic.com. Also, if you use Letterboxed. Uh, you can go to that website and you can look us up. We're a weird house on that. And there's a complete list of all the films we've covered there. And sometimes I'll
0: even go ahead and include the next film we're going to cover in case you want to watch ahead. Huge. Thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com.
2: Zumo
3: Play.